The opposite of fear is bravery. Hmm. Nope. The opposite of fear is curiosity. Is the glass half empty? Is it half full? That misses the point. Elevating curiosity will help you see and understand what's in the glass. This is Applied Curiosity Lab Radio, the podcast of curiosity. In each episode, Becky Saltzman interviews unconventional thinkers and doers in her unconventional way to dissect and uncover what you can use to see things others miss, make better decisions, and apply your talents in new and profound ways. Elevate curiosity, escape the boundaries of ordinary. Welcome to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio ye of relentless curiosity and you curiosity seekers and adventurous thinkers, this is episode 14. And I am your host, Becky Saltzman. And in this episode, it's more of a chat. I suppose if you were considering this an interview, it would be me being interviewed. And the chat today is with my sister, Jennifer Felberg. Jennifer and I are sipping some cocktails and talking curiosity. You may have a very clear idea of curiosity and what that means to you and your life. Maybe you've not given it much thought. Maybe it's all you think about. But I have a sneaking suspicion that this will give you a different twist on curiosity. We talk about two different kinds of curiosity, what I call free-range curiosity and applied curiosity, and how you can manifest and create a culture of curiosity for yourself, for your family, for your friends, for your organization, for your corporation, and then how you can use curiosity as an applied tool. And we are very practical. She's asking me very practical questions. I told her, come with your curiosity. Ask me anything about curiosity. Ask me anything about the work that I'm doing and things that may be confusing and things that would give listeners and give you, Jennifer, I said, actionable bits that you can apply to your own life. So this is what this conversation is about. And it's a little casual because it is my sister. Also, it's our second attempt behind the microphone together because back in 2008, I had this idea that I wanted to do a podcast. So I went to the Powell's bookstore, the largest bookstore in the world, and I bought Podcasting for Dummies. And I tore through the book. And then I approached my brother-in-law, Jennifer's husband, Sonny, who is a sound engineer. And I said, hey, can we record this podcast in your studio? And at that time, he had all the state-of-the-art stuff. It was long before you could just have a handheld recorder and record high-level quality stuff. We had the big interface that had all the buttons, and he did all that. And we tried to have interesting people. And we had interesting people actually come and be interviewed. Ultimately, our two-season K endeavor didn't take off, primarily because we got too busy with other things, but also I was a little daunted by the technology. There wasn't podcast movement where you could just go to these summits and learn. There weren't Facebook groups for podcasters. And I really didn't have any connection in the podcast world. Although somewhere those early interviews live on, on some version of an SD card somewhere, I'm sure. We kind of tabled that idea. But we did have a lot of fun in those early attempts at podcasting. And actually, some of the interviews and some of the episodes were really quite good, or at least they seemed good after a few cocktails. Jump ahead almost 10 years later, and here we are. A little older, hopefully a little wiser, definitely a few more wrinkles. But here we are, talking about curiosity. And our conversation will hopefully provide a framework and a context, 
of curiosity that you can use to listen to future episodes, that you can use to make sense of this deluge of data that is completely inundating us, making it really hard to remain curious. The impetus for this was probably more than just our early hanging out attempts at podcasting, but really my attempt to spread the gospel of curiosity. Because I do think that curiosity is more important now than ever before. Okay, here's an example. Let's say that you have someone with whom you agree with, a public figure that you agree with, a politician, even a good friend, and they seem very, very knowledgeable about three topics that are important to you. And you are in agreement on all three of those topics. And then another topic comes about, brought up in in the public forum, and you're not really sure because these things are nuanced, what position to take. Maybe it's some legislation or some kind of political idea or movement. But we've gotten to the point where there's so many of those things kind of raining down on us, just kind of inundating us, that it makes it hard for us to form our own opinions. It makes it hard for us to be curious. So what do we do? We look to the person, that person with whom you've agreed on three other things, and we say, hmm, what is your opinion on this? And we give up our ability to remain curious and question these things in our own way, with our own tools, with our own critical thinking skills, because there's so much of it that we just say, okay, I agree with this person on issues A, B, and C, therefore, I'm going to assume that I agree with this person on D. And this is just one of the many problems that are exacerbated by the massive amounts of information, and the way that the information is coming at us, whether it's coming at us through selected silos of sameness on social media, through social media algorithms, or whether they are coming at us and being filtered through our cognitive biases or brain bugs, we're just barely staying above the water with all of this information. Some people become specialists, so they really care about these top three issues. Others of us don't even know what to think or what to pick or what to know because we are fearful that if we ignore one area that we'll be completely blindsided by something. And so it's hard to be a specialist in this day of information overload unless we make it our career to be a specialist. So this makes it more important now than ever before to at least maintain a semblance of curiosity. And when I say curiosity, I don't mean an endless inquiry into never really committing to knowing or never judging or never being critical of anything, but just remaining in this kind of fluid state of a tree in the wind. That's not what I'm talking about at all when I'm talking about curiosity. I'm talking about understanding when we know that we know enough and how do we know that we know enough. Some of the things we talk about are filling information gaps. The gap between what we want to know and what we know is pretty easy to fill. The gap between what we want to know and what we need to know is a little different. And we talk about how to fill that. We talk about going to the curiosity gym, getting buffed up, flexing our curiosity muscles and actually tangible exercises that you can do to do that. We have fun. I think you'll enjoy it. I think you'll come away with some actionable bits and maybe I can recruit you in helping us revolutionize the way we think. Please enjoy this episode with me and my sister, Jennifer Felberg. Okay, this reminds me of the old times when we were sitting around probably in 2008 
doing our two C's and a K podcast. We tried. We tried. Well, we we tried, but we really didn't know what we were doing. We had the sound and we had the the humor. And we tried to create this podcast not knowing that you can't just sit around and talk. I mean, no. I, guess, I guess some people can. It's quite boring, I think. <laughs> we were, I mean, we entertained ourselves, but I don't think anybody else would be that entertained. I don't know. Maybe with enough cocktails, it would have been fun. Some of our guests were interesting. Yeah. It was also late at night in our studio with lots of cocktails, so it could be that's the reason. Anyway. Cocktails always help. Yes. And in this case, maybe we'll confess that we do have some cocktails sitting here. I think that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. We're over 21. We are. I'm trying, actually, I have been, as you know, a, an advocate of brown drinks, I should say. So whether that's coffee, beer, tequila, scotch. But lately, the brown drinks, the tequila and scotch, are doing something weird to my head, which makes me nervous. Yeah, I think that happened to me not too long ago. And I had to lay off the brown. But I still have the coffee. You still have the coffee. But you yeah. also like wine. I love wine. I love wine, but wine does not love me. Right. So now you're having a gin and tonic, which, is which you always say is a, an angry drink. Well, isn't gin an angry drink? That's what you say, but I've never heard that before. You've never heard that gin is the angry drink? No. Okay. I thought, I, I definitely did not make that up. Only from you. Okay. <laughs> maybe I dreamt it, or maybe I got pissed off once when I drank a gin and tonic. I Great. Don't. Now you're drinking it. Now I'm drinking it. So we'll see uh, by the end of this podcast if I'm irritated and pissed off at you. So you're going to teach me a little bit about curiosity. Yeah. And you and I have explored what I call curiosity quests. So not just trips and adventures, but actually ways to use curiosity to supersize adventures and get insights. Some of the best times in my life were our curiosity quests. Some of the best, most insightful times, times we had idea generation. and Absolutely. Yeah. So anyway, then you were asking me a bunch of questions about curiosity And I want to take you through my training because we've talked about maybe you joining me in some of these corporate endeavors. Yeah. And I started thinking that you are asking really good questions that might be fun for people who are interested in curiosity and looking at curiosity specifically in a different kind of way. So let's do a podcast. And so here we are with our drinks. Welcome to the studio, Applied Curiosity Lab Studio. I'm very glad to have you here, Jennifer, my sister. I want to start with talking about curiosity in the way that most people think about curiosity, which is the sense of wonder and staring up at the stars and childlike sense of curiosity, looking under stones and the curious child. And I kind of equate that to one of two kinds of curiosity. I equate that to what I call free range curiosity. And I distinguish between free range curiosity and applied curiosity And I think that it's an important distinction, and I think that the idea of understanding curiosity in these ways is more important now than ever before. Agreed. Why do you think it's more important now than ever before? Why do I think curiosity is more important? Because I think... Now, are you talking about applied curiosity or the free-range curiosity? All right, great question. I'll start by saying why I think curiosity is more important now than ever before, then I'll elaborate about the two different kinds of curiosity. Aha. Aha. We have more access to information than ever before. And this is awesome because, you know, in the olden days, whether you were talking to your doctor or talking to your real estate agent or talking to any specialist, they 
gave you information in the drips and dribbles that they wanted you to know. But now you have a diagnosis. You can go online. You can have access. You have access to pretty much any information. There's certainly some science that's sequestered behind some walls that you have to maybe pay for. But we have so much access to information, and yet our ability to filter that information has really remained a constant. Maybe with artificial intelligence, we'll have a different set of abilities, but that's yet to be seen. And we have our beautiful brains, which are filled with brain bugs that help us filter this information. And then we have other ways of filtering information, like social media is a way you can go on Twitter. Every morning I go on Twitter and I look at the moments or I look at the highlights to see what's happened. And I look on Facebook and then I might look at some of my online newspapers. I don't have a newspaper coming. Do you have a newspaper coming? No. Oh God. Uh, Don't get me started. I used to work with seniors and they don't like to look at the phone or or on the computer and they just don't make it anymore so he tried to sell it to me and he, I said no I don't want it unless I can have a real newspaper in my hand oh he tried to sell you an online version yeah like he it, came door to door no it was at this event I was at this weekend and he's like listen I just need to make my quota I'm like oh. That's not a good sales pitch. <laughs> Your needs really do not dovetail with what you're going to try to close me on. Yeah. That's, yeah. Really S- sales point 101. Right. So it's interesting because I'm wondering with the seniors, you think about their access to information and it's severely limited because if they're not online, they're not in the game. And I think actually a lot of my friends who refuse to look at social media for wise reasons potentially are also losing out, which may be kind of comforting in some ways but also it depends on how you want to live your life you know on the bleachers or in the arena and and when you are looking at social media mostly you're getting what just your side of the story I mean you kind of follow or friend like-minded or like opinionated things and you block out the things that you don't agree with all right so this feeds right into why i think curiosity is more important now than ever before that's a great point because not only are you doing it but it's being done for you when you like 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 something you see more of it and when you disregard other things you don't and so those algorithms are showing you more of what you want to see and that means that that algorithm is working very similarly to our brain our brain filled with cognitive biases or brain bugs so one of the most common brain bugs is confirmation bias, which a lot of people know, but for those who don't, it's our tendency to believe evidence that confirms what we already believe and disregard evidence that does not. And that doesn't mean that the evidence is more valid or not valid. It's not based on the validity of the evidence. It's based on how much the evidence conforms to what we already believe. So we filter information that way. That's just how we've always done it. Okay. I don't completely understand what you were just saying. I probably do, but give me an example. Okay. If I give you evidence that Donald Trump is a dipshit, you are going to believe that evidence a lot, a lot easier than you will believe evidence that shows that he's an intellectual giant, regardless (laughs) of the veracity of that evidence. Okay. Loud and clear. Okay. (laughs) Even if I gave you evidence of something that he had done in this example that is brilliant, you would be very hard-pressed to believe that evidence, no matter how valid that evidence is. And We've gotten worse and worse at that, haven't we? We have, because we have more information. And that's the point. 
we've gotten, it's not that we've gotten worse. We just have more information to filter. We don't have the time to be as discerning and we don't have the time for curiosity. And that mm. is why I think now is the time to usher in the age of curiosity. And to speak to those two types of curiosity, I think a lot of people, a lot of us think that we're more curious now than ever before. We were sitting at a cocktail party or across the dinner table and we get in some debate about whether a rhino has the ability to pee 20 feet behind or 30 feet behind. I remember at the zoo, we were having this discussion. I was going to say, when at a cocktail party would you have that kind of conversation? But uh, apparently you did. uh, We did. We did. And it was after visiting the zoo where it said, stand back because rhinos can spray their (laughs) urine. So, you know, we were trying to say, okay, was it six feet or 10 feet? And all you do is have to whip out your phone to answer that question. And that's filling the gap between what we want to know and what we and what we know. That's a very easy gap to fill. So we see that with find out what your horcrux is or <laughs> what's your spirit animal. And that's the gap between oh, what God. we want to know and what we know, right? Right. And we think that that is curiosity. And to a certain extent, it is. But the access to information on our phones or the ability to look up anything means that we can look up anything that has already been discovered. But what is not there is what has yet to be discovered. Without curiosity new answers will cease to exist. So you can have all the answers that we've ever asked before right at your fingertips, which is awesome. But without curiosity, new answers will cease to exist. That's scary. It is. And it becomes dangerous when we are blindsided in big ways. And it becomes dangerous when we are blindsided in simple ways, like after a personal diagnosis of some scary thing or when you're blindsided at work by getting passed over with a job or when you're blindsided by an election result. That might make you feel kind of discombobulated, but it can have ramifications for for your life. If all you're seeing is your own silo of sameness, and a lot of people use they want to get together with like-minded people. And let me tell you, it is so much easier to get together with like-minded people. Yeah. But that's not really where the insights hide. And if you want to be able to live in a world where you have to get along with people who may not be like-minded, you're going to have to have a pretty buff curiosity muscle. For example, and you know, I don't want to get too far away from before I get into free-range curiosity and applied curiosity, but I'll just use an example because you asked a specific example of how social media can pull us further and further apart. And I think we're, you know, I think we're kind of seeing that. You look yeah. in your own feed and we're, and, and listen, people say this side is more gullible to fake news and this side is, no, not really. To your point about the social media, creating the inability to get along with other people, it's fine in the, maybe in the confines of Facebook, right? But it becomes really dangerous when we are reliant on each other to get along or to make decisions or to see things, threats, which don't necessarily come from people. It could come from the environment, the environment, technology, right? Another country. (laughs) An example of how to use curiosity in a very strategic way, and then, like I said, I'll get into this free range versus applied, Mm -hmm. is just this fun thing that I did that will kind of show the power of curiosity in crossing ideological barriers. So I went to the Women's March on Washington, as you know. I wanted Uh, you to go. You didn't invite me. 
And that I wanted you to go. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> and we were all wearing. Plus, it was cold. It right? was. I think that's why you said you didn't want to do it. I, I you don't, don't want like your hands cold. to get all I, uh, numb because I have Renaud's. Renaud's? Mm-hmm. Renaud's. Renaud's? Where your hands go numb in the cold. Anyway, we digress. <laughs> <laughs> you went to the Women's March on Washington. Yeah. And I wore one of those pussy hats in full regalia and was with a bunch of like minded women marching. It was powerful. It was amazing. It was interesting. Mm -hmm. But I heard that there was this Bikers for Trump rally taking place at the same time. And I was just fascinated. I wanted to know what this Bikers for Trump. So I had to slither away from my group and go find this Bikers for Trump. And there were, you know, a lot of people there. And finally, I find the Bikers for Trump group and they were surrounded, well, semi-circle surrounded by people in pussy hats from all the people from the march, jeering at them, yelling at them. Hmm. And were they doing anything to encourage the jeering? No, they were looking a little sheepish. I mean, maybe I didn't see it. Maybe it had happened before. I don't know. And I think their mere existence with their big Trump stuff and their, their. Were they men, women, both? All, both, 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 both. Kids. Oh, okay. Yeah. Not a huge group relative to the groups surrounding the the pussy hats, (laughs) the the pussy hat gang. (laughs) But I made my way through that semicircle up to the bikers for Trump. But I had a very specific test in mind. I wanted to see if I could get them to take a selfie. And I wanted to test whether I could find an uncommon commonality, even with people at a moment in time at this heightened, heightened political, politically tense environment, if I could find an uncommon commonality so that they would take a selfie with me. So at first I asked them to take a selfie and they were like, hell no, you guys, because I was identified by my garb as the identity politics of someone that was an other, which is very, we're seeing this very, very common. And I said, okay, well, remember, we're all Americans thinking this is a commonality, not an uncommon commonality. Let me test a commonality. I said, we're all Americans and someone comes for us, they're coming for you, they're coming for me. And it did not work. They had zero interest in taking a selfie with me. And I said, okay, the real reason, I recently took a motorcycle riding class, which I, as as you you know, I did. And I was wondering for myself, but I also have a question about Trump. I said, I was wondering, Crotch Rocket or Harley? And do you think that you're a biker for Trump? So does he, does does Trump ride a motorcycle? Crotch Rocket, is he a motorcycle rider like us? Perfect. And we started talking about what he would be and they, they started arguing whether the Harley or the crotch rocket. And then a few minutes into it, I said, all right, we're taking a selfie. And they all lined up and took a selfie. Now, one guy at the back was sneering. I didn't know. He was like making this face like, oh, my God, someone, someone's in the picture who really speaks. But that was kind <laughs> you of... You know what? We've done that ourselves. So we can't really <laughs> it's complain called about photobombing. it. Yeah. It's Many called, times. It's called photobombing. Do you have that picture still? I do. I do. I'll put it in the show notes. I think you should. I'll put it in the show notes for yeah, this particular... I haven't seen it. I'd love to see it. You haven't? No. I know that the power of being curious about finding an uncommon commonality, because really, even though people say in this kind of woo-woo way, we're all one, in a molecular, in a scientific way, on a molecular level, we are all connected. It can't be completely ridiculous that we could find an uncommon commonality with anyone. It may not be enough to make you kumbaya into a selfie, but probably. So you're saying that that is a way to flex your curiosity That's muscle. one way to flex your curiosity muscle. And to get rid of some of those blocks, those brain bugs, when you are just 
surrounding yourself by like-minded people. Is that what you're saying? You're asking a good question for clarification, because I want to talk about going to the curiosity gym. First, I want to say that the difference between free-range curiosity and applied curiosity is free-range curiosity is kind of this general sense of wonder. And it really equates with basic science, which is maybe a scientist would study the molecular structure of cells to figure out how to understand the molecular structure of cells. And in that study that they would publish, different people would find different ways to apply that science. But it's really for a pursuit of knowledge, a general pursuit of knowledge. Applied science might look at looking at the molecular structure of cells to come up with better chemotherapy treatments, for example. So a very applied specific reason. And that's similar with free-range curiosity and applied curiosity. Now, as we get older, we need to learn to apply that curiosity and we move away from free-range curiosity kind of by necessity. I mean, you start to say, okay, all of the things that you're interested in in high school, what are you going to apply that to in college or what are you going to apply that to in your career? And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, you can't just go around with this, oh, I want to stare at the stars. To be able to go back to that (laughs) free-range plenty of people that do. Well, that's true. (laughs) But I mean, and that's good. That's important too. But clearly there is an application that people are missing as well. And that's what my work is about. That's what Applied Curiosity Lab does. So free-range, just to get it in my head, free-range is... The pursuit of knowledge just for knowledge. The pers- free-range curiosity would be being curious for curious sake, staring up at the stars, wondering, not to be able to figure out if there are aliens and create a missile that would prevent us from being probed by aliens, but specifically just a pursuit of knowledge. Okay. And then applied is how you use that curiosity for something. Right. Applied curiosity in what I do is how to use curiosity for very specific things. And Applied Curiosity Lab training is specifically for influence and sales, innovation, creative problem solving, and then what I say, busting brain bugs or cognitive bias understanding for better decision making, which is a mouthful of saying sales and influence, innovation, and better decision making. Those are the ways that I focus on applying curiosity in a very specific way. But when you start looking at curiosity as a muscle, there's a lot of evidence that we are all born with curiosity. And they've done tests with very, very young babies measuring their curiosity with eye movements. We are all born with some curiosity. And then it's cultivated by the kind of environment where it's engaged with education and your parents and what, and it's stifled by children should be seen but not heard upbringings and upbringings that value answers over questions and upbringings that make you fearful of being wrong. Those are curiosity killers. Our curiosity is not cultivated in a traditional way that we're brought up. So by the time we're our age, it's really hard because we have flaccid curiosity muscles. I think mine's more flaccid than yours. Well, I've been working mine out for a bit longer, but I think that you can get back. It's like, you know, it's like go back to, you can get back to the gym. Yeah, I was saying that. I was saying, you know, a lot of times I've relied on your curiosity. You know, you're always the one that asks the questions. You've always been the one that challenges people all the time. And, you know, that's why we always bring you to the hospital when we have to go for some kind of issue. I think that that made me weak and flabby with my curiosity. Well, let's tell, I can tell you how you can buff it up. Okay. I mean, I I think that's what I, that's why I think I'm here is because I would like to learn how, I would think that I am curious, but I don't know how to apply that curiosity. Okay. We can look at three different ways to do basic curiosity exercises. Okay. 
Number one, when I talk about, you've probably heard me ad nauseum talking about elevating curiosity ahead of criticism, judgment, fear, and complacency. Once or twice. Once or twice, right. (laughs) Now, a good friend of ours, Eve, had asked, well, does elevating curiosity ahead of judgment make you less judgmental? And I thought that was a really good question because I think that I'm not the least judgmental person, but I... But I'm not as quick to judge, but I would say that elevating curiosity doesn't make you less judgmental. It makes you more accurate in your judgments, and that may be more important. And an example that I reminded you of not that long ago that I think about was when we were having a garage sale. You were younger, and you and Jeff were doing the lemonade stand, and Hmm. we were doing this garage sale at the house, and this woman comes careening around the corner pulling into our driveway. She gets out of the car. There was a neighbor there that was kind of a neighbor lady that was kind of a neighborhood garage sale. So there were other people from the neighborhood that were kind of bringing their crap there and hanging out. Back in the 70s, this is probably. Back back in the groovy 70s. Yes. The woman came out and she was disheveled, scary, a little combative maybe. Hmm. And the neighbor lady said that she needed to leave or she'd call the cops. And we were kind of like, oh, this woman. And, And mom came and took the woman aside, asked her a couple of questions, and then took her inside the house. And as you know, our mom was not the taking strangers into the house. Right. That's a surprise. You remember this or no? Not at all. Okay. She took the woman into the house and a few minutes later, maybe 15, 10 minutes later, not that long later, the woman comes out and she was coherent, put together, normal. And it turns out that mom had decided and discovered through a couple of curious questions that the woman was experiencing a diabetic yep. coma that's and the remedy thought, yeah. was orange juice. Yeah. And that's an example of curiosity does not make you less judgmental. It makes you more accurate in your judgments. And I really think that's more important. That's a really good example. Just a simple example. Yeah. So what do you do? Well, I suggest thinking of a basic metaphor. So I have a metaphor of a pogo stick. I don't know why. And when I'm approached with something and the first thing that comes into my mind is criticism, judgment, fear, or even complacency, I just think of that pogo stick or a dial where I just elevate curiosity, just quickly, quickly elevate curiosity. Check myself. Am I jumping into criticism, jumping into judgment, jumping into fear, (laughs) Yeah. Jumping into complacency too soon. So that's that's exercise number one. That's easier said than done. Okay. How, in some of your past examples, mm-hmm. when you, like you were saying, when you feel relieved with with an answer and you don't really want to, you know, when you're feeling comfortable with your, with your answer, you don't really want, you're not even thinking how to turn that dial on. How do you... How do you check yourself before okay. you wreck yourself? <laughs> check your, and, and this has practical, practical implications in a medical setting. It has practical implications in a business setting when you're in some kind of contentious meeting. Yeah. It has a lot of practical implications with your spouse and your children. Absolutely. I mean, I know in my past work experiences, I've jumped to those conclusions. Usually it's based on myself, you know, my, what they feel about me. I'm sure I've done that with my kids, with my husband. Yeah. So how do you stop yourself from... So I call it asking one more question. Okay. And if you elevate curiosity, it's not this endless spinning. 
It's not this endless inquiry into the unknown or unanswerable. It's understanding when you understand enough. It's not being a tree in the wind where you never make a decision. So a practical example is, as you know, my son, your nephew, Mm -hmm. was diagnosed with cancer when he was 17 years old. A few years after that, which was a couple of years ago, he was having severe vertigo to the point where he pretty much couldn't walk without walking sticks. And this wasn't long. Couldn't get in the car, couldn't work. Yeah, it was pretty bad. It was bad. And it was not that long after our mother died of a brain tumor. So yeah, we had that on our, we had that on our mind. On our radar. Yes. And I took him to the doctor and the doctor ordered an MRI of his brain, which was probably a wise thing to do. And I wanted that done as soon as possible. So I got a call from the scheduling coordinator, Barkley. I told him I would, I would arrange to take the call and arrange to get it set up. And so she called me to set it up. She said, when do you want to do it? I said, as soon as possible. She said, what do you want it? I told her the hospital so that we could walk there with the walking sticks instead of drive and have him be sick. Yeah. She asked, you know, does he have metal in his mouth? I said, yeah, he has a permanent retainer. Asked some, you know, typical questions. Puts me on hold to schedule. Comes back. It's been like five minutes. Comes back and says, okay, it's all set. Monday morning. 8 o'clock, be there at 7.30, small magnet MRI. No worry about food or drink. It's totally fine. Just no alcohol 24 hours before. Maybe a couple of other things and set. And it was good because I was excited. You to be, get it done. Right. And we solved the problem. This was Thursday and I wanted it on Monday. Mm-hmm. And so that, that sense of complacency came over me like a cherished friend. But that's when this exercise, this little pogo stick, this quick little pogo stick of elevating curiosity kicks in. And when you walk around with this muscle, when you, you start to see things that other people miss because you ha- you're, you're used to it. It's kind of like driving. You don't have to be constantly looking over your shoulder and doing everything you learn in driving school. You just kind of get the hang of it. Yeah. And, and so I realized that that complacency was maybe a trigger for elevated curiosity. And I just asked one more question. What was it? And the question was, tell me about the small magnet. Are there many magnets? Are there a large magnet? Is there a small magnet? Is there an extra large magnet? And she said, well, there's a small and a large magnet. And I said, well, is one more powerful than the other? And she said, yeah, the large magnet is more powerful. And I said, well, why would they do the large magnet versus the small magnet? And she says, well, because he has a retainer in his mouth and because that's metal with the MRI. I said, well, I, we could take that retainer out. She says, well, listen, I mean, I know you wanted it right away. And I called and they were at lunch. So I went ahead and booked it. I said, mm, let me ask you a question. If this was your child. Oh, my God. Would you, and they were looking for a brain tumor and he had had cancer before and we had a brain tumor in the family. Would you wait to find out from the physician whether the small magnet or large magnet was indicated? And she said, yes, I would. And I said, then I'd like to, too. A few hours later, I get a call admonishing me from a different coordinator saying that there's no way that you can have it on Monday. You have to have it on Wednesday because the small magnet, given his history and his symptoms, is counterindicated. And this is what's so interesting. And this goes to the third kind of exercise that I would say, which is understanding that there are information gaps that curiosity needs to fill. And one of them we talked about before, when you look at the, you know, what's your horcrux or what's your spirit animal is the gap between what you want to know and what you know. And that is what we click on when we look at social media. We want to know this, we click on it, we know it. That fills our confirmation bias, right? But the gap between what we want to know and what we need to know is a very different gap to fill. 
So if we would have had the small magnet MRI, that would have been filling the gap between what I want to know and what I know. But it wouldn't have been filling the gap between what I want to know and what I need to know. As it turns out, we had the large magnet MRI and you know it was fine. But what if I had had the small magnet well, you MRI? You would always be wondering. No, I wouldn't. Oh, because you wouldn't have asked. I wouldn't have known. It would have filled the gap between what I want to know and what I know, but it wouldn't have filled the gap between what I want to know and what I needed to know because I never asked one more question to know what I needed to know. Jeez. And, and how did you know to ask those questions? I don't know if I would even know to ask. That's, that's where I think I have trouble is, and I think that's what you're talking about, these three steps in flexing and working out, is how do you, like, how do you know what questions to ask? If you are curious and require yourself to ask a question, maybe at first your questions are stupid. Like yeah. you're at a cocktail party and you know that your assignment is to not try to be interesting, but to try to be interested. And that's all you're going to do. I'm just going to try to be interested. And you find something to be interested about. That can be your question. And you don't have to worry about whether it's an intelligent question. And that's one of the biggest fears. Like yes. you might ask someone something that seems dumb. But asking something out of curiosity can actually take the patina of stupidity, judgment, and criticism off of it. So sometimes you'll ask a question and people will take it the wrong way. But sometimes just saying the words out of curiosity yes. makes, gives you permission. Telling people that you are working on a curiosity project gives you permission to ask people things that you haven't been able to ask since you were in fourth grade and you were told to do an assignment on your favorite job and you went into the <laughs> dentist and you got to ask the dentist all kinds of questions and they took you into the back room and showed you their payroll and showed you their fluoride treatment. It's only just McDonald's. We got to go behind McDonald's and see how they fried their french fries. But if you went in as an adult and said, listen, I'm working on this curiosity project, manager of McDonald's, I would need to see how this McDonald's works. They would look at you like, hmm, I don't know. Are you Burger King coming to spy? Are you Dairy Queen coming to see our secret? If they had curiosity. If they had curiosity. But chances are you said, no, I'm actually working on this curiosity project. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you say a blog. In my case, I say a podcast. So it's kind of an entree. But actually letting people know that you're working on this, you're trying to find whatever you're trying to do out of curiosity can be a very easy way to ask. But again, I guess if I would say the fourth little exercise is just focus on being interested instead of trying to be interesting. I think that is extremely helpful. I was at a party or somewhere the other day, and I have you in my head a lot, unfortunately or unfortunately. <laughs> and, um, and I was talking to someone who I feel was probably a little more intelligent or, you know, like I was probably initially intimidated by this person. And so I stopped myself and just tried to be interested instead of trying to entertain or be intimidated by this person. And I just kept asking this person questions. And at first, I think the person was a little taken aback by some of my questions. But Eventually, we actually had a pretty good conversation, and it made a huge, huge difference in just that in one interaction. I mean, it didn't change the world, but I need to do that more. And I think that's extremely helpful to have those three or four tangible exercises 
That I like. That I think is extremely helpful. One of the things you can look at is, is there anything in this series of things that I've been told that I don't quite understand? And that's an yeah. easy way. So when I told the story about the MRI, for example, I've told that story, I don't know, dozens of times, if not more. And to many, many people who would consider themselves, I would say, relentlessly curious and not one has said, and some people have been medical, so maybe they have, would have known, but you would have thought they would have asked. Not mm. one has said there was something that they would have asked or clarified. Now, I think when you hear your child and cancer, the number one thing you're trying to do is achieve that sense of calm or complacency. And frankly, that's why most people don't ask for second opinions. And the time that they ask for second opinions on things is when the first opinion wasn't something that they liked, didn't create that sense of calm, when the first opinion jibed with what they wanted to hear. I think also, you know, you're worried about insulting someone. Mm. I mean, I'm sure you were worried about insulting the person on the phone when you were asking these questions about the big magnet versus the small magnet. But in the end, you should be more curious. But that is a really good point. People who say that there are no bad questions, I think that's a come on. Because mm. if there's a good question, that means that there's a continuum of quality of questions that some have to be on the low end of the bell curve. So I actually think that there are better questions. If you don't want to be nice about it, if I want to be blunt about it, there are bad questions. And so if you're asking your doctor, for example, and suggesting that you want a second opinion, you know, you could always say, if you were me, what would you ask you? That's such a good question. If you were me. Or if you were the smartest patient in the world, <laughs> what would you ask you? Those kinds of things are the only way to help the other person see the situation through your eyes. It's the closest that they're ever going to get to climbing into your skull and looking out your eyes. So whether you're approaching your boss and saying, if you were me, what would you do to impress you? Oh. Those? Where were you when I was trying to do this, for <laughs> God's sake? <laughs> but I mean, these are things, but you have to be curious because here's the deal. You're curious with your boss. What's it going to take to get that promotion? The question to have asked and answered is there for you. You just have to figure out how to ask it. Instead of saying, what do I need to do to get promoted? That's a fine question, but it's not as good as if you were me, what would you do to impress you? That's a totally different, or what would you- Those are real curious questions. That's huge. So I guess if we looked at the idea of curiosity as a muscle, and then the idea of curiosity as an applied tool, I think if I was to give one lesson in application, and it kind of mushes, because once you flex that muscle, you can start to see how it becomes a tool as well, right? Mm -hmm. But I think one of the most basic tools is- to look at curiosity as something that you have as a muscle, but you understand that more curiosity is not always optimal for the situation. And also the way that we default to using curiosity is very specific to us, but it can change. So for example, a lot of us have, you've, have you taken Myers-Briggs? Yeah, yeah, and DISC. You did DISC and Myers-Briggs. Yes. So you know, you're told you're an extrovert feeling, judgy, whatever it is, judgment, whatever the things are. You know, I'm not telling you what they said I was. <laughs> you were a five. I'm not giving you, you any were, ammunition. You were a five out of a thousand. 
your IQ. Just like my SATs. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Those are the things that say this is what you are. And then you get a group dynamic where you find all of these people are this, 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 and this, and how you work with them. I think that, you know, that's really important. That self-assessment is- It's re- fun. In the Applied Curiosity training, we start with the curiosity archetypes, and there are four archetypes. You've taken the test, but I've been trying to- I think I'm a- Wait, what are you? I think you're Amelia Earhart. I think I am. Yeah, I think you're- Amelia- I think I am. I, I can't really remember, but I think that's what I am. I, yeah. I, I mean, but that's not what I am. That's my tool, right? right. Can't say that's what I am. Right. Yeah. So with the archetypes, it's very different. And that's the reason I like archetypes better than I like, this is what you are. This is yeah. what you're always going to be. <laughs> and I would, I, I guess the best ex- explanation is, think of curiosity as like a dowel, a wooden dowel sitting on the desk. And if there is a wooden dowel sitting on the desk, and I say, okay, I look at you and I say, what are you going to do with that dowel? I would probably pick up that dowel and poke someone with it, because I like to provoke being <laughs> past. Um, what would you do? I probably... Probably use it as something. I probably like put my hair up in it or something. Okay. Yeah. One other person I said you said that they would use it as a conducting wand. Yeah. To conduct an orchestra. Dane would like probably your son would yeah he would stick. use drum. My son would would probably hit somebody with it. <laughs> I think, I For think, sure he'd hit I think, somebody. I think Barkley would probably t- <laughs> take the little pieces of wood and and pick Pe- it up, pick it off without even knowing. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. But different or maybe it's, and Sonny would probably carve it into something. Oh, for sure. He'd make a whistle out of it or something yeah Yeah, something practical a a car someone else might use it to like fish through the junkyard to find useful that would be our father yeah (laughs) for sure yeah fish the junkyard (laughs) to find some gadget that he could sell Sell. (laughs) right exactly in an auction Mm -hmm. but i mean the way that you use that dowel is indicative of how you use a tool but it doesn't mean you're forever going to use a dowel just to conduct an orchestra or fish through something or poke someone or hit someone right. you could you might not have ever th- thought about it as a tool for putting it in your hair or building a whistle the point is that with this dowel you default to probably using it a certain way but when you see other people using it a different way it can be very powerful in terms of what that dowel can be and imagine that dowel like curiosity so that's how you it's not you it's just what your default is. Right. And it, it probably is how you will use curiosity as your default. And there's a lot that the archetypes show you, which is really insightful in terms of the cognitive biases that you're susceptible to. It's pretty so cool. cool stuff. Yeah. It's fun. But once you understand curiosity as a tool, you start to learn one of the most foundational trainings of Applied Curiosity Lab. And that is the concept of peak curiosity. Okay. Okay. First, you start to realize that once you cultivate within yourself or your company or or your organization a culture of curiosity, then you can start to see how to use it as a tool. And once you start to use it as a tool, you want to see, okay, why do we even want this as a tool? Well, that's the three areas, sales and influence, creative problem solving and and innovation, and then decision making, which is cognitive bias or brain bugs. But we'll talk about the first one, which is influence and sales. Why? Because the vast majority of when we open our mouths, interact with other people, we are attempting in some way to convince, persuade, influence, sell, arouse, cajole, some entice. It's what we do. It's why we communicate. So the vast majority of the time that we're doing that. And that's not a bad thing. You know, I think people would take that as a negative. I don't think it's a bad thing. 
Well, it can certainly be a negative, but if that's how you're going to using it, I need you to turn, tune out right now. Plug your ears. Plug your ears. Because if you're using this for deceptive means, then you're not allowed for this very powerful information. This is for people who want to make the world a better place. I'll be good, I promise. <laughs> I don't want to see you manipulating people into buying a card that they don't want with zero down. <laughs> you can't lose. You're going to win the steak knives. Right here, right now. Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. <laughs> this peak curiosity is fantastic whether you're trying to sell someone something, trying to convince your boss to give you a raise, trying to have a customer engage with you, trying to get a date trying to convince your children or persuade your children to do something, trying to get your partner to re-energize. It's really how we influence. And it's understanding that you can manipulate or dial familiarity in a very strategic way. It also is very helpful for you if you want to do some self-evaluation so you can pique your own curiosity. And so you can pique it for yourself and for others. And there's different ways of doing that. Before... I get into that, I'll kind of describe, and this is hard without a visual, but imagine a vertical, the y-axis vertical Mm -hmm. on a graph is curiosity. And imagine the horizontal x-axis is familiarity. Okay. Vertical, curiosity. Got it. Horizontal, Familiarity. familiarity. The zero, zero point is zero curiosity, right? Right. So you're no familiar no curiosity, right? And you go down. What would be an example of that? Okay. You don't know anything about scotch. Never heard the word, never knew it was an alcohol, never knew it was anything. And no interest in it. You don't even know it exists. So okay. you have no familiarity. Okay. Or you have no familiarity with the concept of curiosity even being something that you can learn. Well, why would you be interested in it? When I go into companies and they have no idea that curiosity can be a tool, there's like no interest or they've never even thought of curiosity as something they need to cultivate. There's like zero, zero, zero. It's a stupid company, but yeah. Oh, that's not very nice. Judgy. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's right. I'm trying to learn. I'm trying to learn. Be good. Okay. Now, on the other end, all the way down, the more familiar we are with something, interestingly enough, the less curious we are. And if you think about it, it is the expertise bias. When you are an expert at something, and particularly when you're outwardly an expert at something, you are not rewarded for being unfamiliar. So if you're the CEO of a company or you're an expert in a particular area that you want people to know you as an expert, you're not benefiting from saying, I don't know. That is a culture that we have squashed this comfort with or this public acknowledgement of I don't know. Is that would that be like, you know, this whole thing about flip flopping? Mm-hmm. That's really oh, that's an excellent example. On one hand, we talk about learning from our mistakes. Right. On the other hand, we say anyone who changes their mind is a flip flopper. That also has to do with a very one of the kind of tenets of persuasion, which is consistency. We have a very powerful need to be consistent with our behaviors. Let's say I say to you, you always come to my house on Wednesdays. Will you come to my house on Wednesday? You yes. would say, yes, I come to your house on Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Or you always have my back when I'm stranded on the freeway at 3 o'clock in the morning. Will you come pick me up at 3 o'clock in the morning? Just identifying that helps people. It's a persuasive tool because we want to remain consistent. When you are familiar with something and you're out of the closet being familiar with it, 
that's consistency does have a lot to do with it because you want to be consistent with being someone that's familiar. But the problem is you can be susceptible to being blindsided. Because when you're so familiar with something that you're not curious anymore, that's when you're blindsided. So in terms of a self-evaluation tool, that's important. Now, when you're slightly familiar with something, there is an optimal period of familiarity, an optimal level of familiarity where you are at peak curiosity. That would be something like you're just introduced to a product that might be interesting to you. You never heard of it. Like those magnetic eyelashes. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about those. Okay. So use that as an example. Oh, I, I'm kind of curious about those, too. Will it do something bad to your eyes? Does it work? Okay, let's Will go back. Fall? Let's go back 10 years. We never knew that there were extensions you could put on your eyelashes. <sighs> so I wasn't curious about how to make my eyelashes longer. All I knew was mascara, right? And fake eyelashes. Oh, I guess there were fake eyelashes. Yeah, but not like, okay. Yes. Okay. So fake eyelashes. That was it. That was it. But I wasn't curious, like, was there some kind of chemical I could put to make my eyelash? I didn't, you don't. Right. And frankly, I didn't even know that long eyelashes were something to be. No, it was just a style in the 60s. And that's really a good example, too, because even new kind of ways of looking at beauty, Mm -hmm. like maybe we never looked at, think about hairlessness. You know, we never looked at being hairless, right, from chin to toe, (laughs) or from nose, I should say, from nose to toe. What was that? Uh, What was that Tim Minchin song where he said, from neck down alopecia? (laughs) Called about neck down alopecia. That's what we all strive to have. (laughs) I was like nose down alopecia (laughs) after I hit menopause. Yeah, neck down. That doesn't even cover half of it. (laughs) Nose down alopecia. Anyway, that whole idea of beauty, that wasn't even something I'd be curious about because I never even thought about that. I mean, that's just uh, per- whatever. It could be, but let's take a practical example, okay. a business example. All right. All right. Let's take the fact that you're trying to sell someone something at your work and they have been buying from you for years and years and years. And now you have a new product to introduce that addresses a problem that you've never addressed for them. They've always gone to another company. So they always think of you as someone who sells them a particular product. They're very familiar with you. There's no reason to make them curious because they're buying from you and buying from you and buying from you. The last thing you need to do is make them curious about whether they should buy from you. And actually, that's an important distinction because people don't equate this peak curiosity graph with the sales cycle. So when you're ready to sign a contract with someone, Someone's going to ask you to, for their hand in marriage. You're ready to sign a big contract with them. They're going to give you a promotion. They're going to give you a promotion. Thank yeah. you. That's not, the time to, that's not the time to go up the peak curiosity, down the familiarity and peak curiosity with your boss or your potential fiancé. That's or, the time to what? To shut the fuck up? Or? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay. What? That comment just made me have to change this to an explicit. Thank you oh, very much. sorry. <laughs> shut the, the bleep up. <laughs> that's the time to shut the fuck up. Okay. That's the time to, as Saul taught me, breathe through the nose. When in negotiations, it's best to breathe through your nose. That is not the time to peak curiosity. When you're a real estate agent and you're ready to have your person sign the contract, that's not to say, are you sure you want to do this? Have you thought about these things we've never discussed before? Right. You want to have done that. So when is the right time then to peak curiosity? 
when you want a promotion, when you want your boss to see you a certain way, when you're trying to get a new client, when you're introducing a new product, when you're trying to mm -hmm. turn your partner into someone yeah. that's excited by you. You have been working in HR and you have been kicking butt in HR. And this is interesting because I think there's a lot of information about women being senior, senior level, but mostly in support roles. Ugh. And yet the C-suite is really filled with people who are in the line, on the line, not in support roles. Don't get me started on that. Okay. So Ugh. there are many, many reasons that are irrelevant in this conversation. But let's just say that in this particular case, you want to move from being an HR person that has kicked butt in a support role to getting on the line or being in a line role because you want to move into director or VP or C-suite, right? Right. So the most common way that we would do that is we would meet with our boss. We would tell them all the amazing things that we've done. Maybe we've rolled out this huge benefit package. We've created this whole diversity program, which 100% compliance and no violations. We've had whatever HR we had a big change that you led the organization in change. Those are all great. You've kicked butt in a support role. And let's say your boss knows it. Your boss knows that you've done an not just a good job, an incredible job. Yeah. You have even gone above and beyond in your job. But the boss is not curious about you in a line role. And line meaning C-suite, right? Line meaning... Mm -hmm. Not support, but direct contributing. Okay. So, you know, whatever that might be. Okay. You know, the next level up. The next level up, well, maybe even a lateral level out of a support role into a marketing role or a sales role or an engineering management role or oh. some role that would not be considered support, but direct. So they're at zero, zero. No, no, no. They're not at zero, they zero. they never thought of no, this I'd person. No, I'd say that they're actually very familiar with you. Oh, okay. So they're at the, Okay. I'd say that they're very familiar with you. Okay. So they have expertise bias on you. They know you. They respect you. They love you. And most of the time when we go into the boss, we try to sell them more on love, more on respect, more on knowledge. And we think that we are giving them some reason to promote us. But we're giving them justification for them being more expertise in what we are. More familiar. More familiar. Got it. Less and, curious. Right. Got it. That is the time when we want to pique curiosity in our boss. So how do you do that? Okay. You don't want to pique curiosity that what other things could you do in an HR support function that I might want to put you in unless that's what you want to do. So you have to start with your objective. You have to be very clear in your objective. And then you say, how can I make this boss more curious in a way that will reduce their familiarity of what I can bring to the role that I want? Right. So yeah, so like for me, I was in a situation where I was this exact situation and I wanted to move into operations. So what would I have done to pique curiosity? The power the powers that be this curiosity. Okay. On my on myself. Okay. So you don't want them more curious about the events that you did or the programs that you ran or the compliance that you were able to achieve or all the things that you wanted to do. You wanted to identify operation functions that they would be not familiar with your knowledge of or experience in. Okay. And if you have no knowledge or experience in those, then it's going to be very hard to justify getting that role in the first place. So you have to go get that. I mean, you can't That's ask... That's part of this curiosity muscle that we need to flex, right? Like how... Right. 
okay, I want that, but I can't just ask for it because I've been so great on my existing role because that's actually the Peter principle, right? You yes, know? Yeah, I, I mean, hate that. But yeah, yes. you know, you were a great Ugh, basketball player, that. so you're going to be a great coach. Well, yeah. not really, unless you've shown that you can do things, a right. coaching function. So what could be something that you could do? Maybe in your role, you could have gone on a curiosity quest and interviewed for a project, a blog post, a podcast, a curiosity project, different operation managers, directors, COOs in different industries to find insights and wisdom that they could glean. Then you go to your boss and say, I've been thinking, as you know, and you want the blemishing, so you want to acknowledge that they're going to be skeptical, as you know, why would you do that? Okay, so anytime that you identify a weakness in your argument before someone else does, it allows you to infiltrate the other areas that they might disagree with in a much easier way. So, for example, mm. I don't want to get too far off, but like, let's That's say... That's interesting, though. I don't want to get too far off. We'll save the, it for another podcast. We'll save that for another... We'll talk, <laughs> about, we'll talk about the blemishing effect and some of the other things that you can use curiosity for in some of these other podcasts, because I think it would be fun to have... So much, so much stuff. Curiosity is a really, really powerful tool. Before we wrap up, I'll get, we'll finish this kind of scenario with your boss. So okay. you might go to your boss and say, listen, I have been, as you know, I have been in this HR function or in this support function, and I have loved it. But I've been very curious about whether my skills could bring insights, wisdom, or action to the operation role. And I went out to find out because I knew you'd be skeptical. And I thought to myself, you know what? Frankly, I wouldn't blame you for being skeptical. So I've interviewed 15 operation managers with uh, five from within the industry, 10 from outside the industry to try to get insights. And what I found, quite frankly, were some things I think we could use that I'd like to share with you. I found some things that would be really, really interesting. Now, that might not mean that you're getting the promotion today. But you've piqued curiosity. You're not going to close them at the exact time you peak curiosity but you've peaked curiosity. Mm. And when you start peaking curiosity, you've dialed down their familiarity and what you can bring, and that peaks curiosity. Now, the mistake is to assume that right then and there, you're going to close them. You don't close people when you've peaked curiosity. So you have to be thoughtful about this process. And if you look around and you say, I'm so busy with my job in, in HR or my job in programs. Which I, is what we do all the time. But well, that's part of that complacency that you were talking about. Right. I'm so busy I can't do that. Then, frankly, why should your boss see you in something else? I mean, right. if you have nothing to offer, if you have no insights, if you can only tell them that you've been great in your existing job, then you have to cross your fingers that like someone will see that connection. This is how you can this really think about curiosity as a self-evaluation tool for yourself. And we'll talk about that later because we're going to run out of time and I can't keep you all night long. And plus we're running, our drinks are running low. Oh man. And, you know, I'm supposed to keep this to an hour. <laughs> but I think that I want to start sharing a little bit about curiosity in between some of these other episodes to see if there's cool things that people can use. And I think we'll go back to our two season of K way and hang out and kick it with some cocktails. So thank you, Jennifer, for joining me. This has been so much fun and so, so useful. Thank you so much. Thank you. My sister, Jennifer Felberg. Thanks so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. Before you take off, I have a quick question and a few more things to let you know about. One, you can find show notes and all resources mentioned at appliedcuriositylab.com forward slash blog. And the question... 
Would you enjoy joining the ranks of curiosity seekers and adventurous thinkers? If so, you're invited to join the Tribe of the Curious. You'll receive Quick Curiosity Monday. This short weekly email is curiosity lube for your brain. It consists of ideas I'm pondering, curiosities the tribe has shared, and things that I'm enjoying that I suspect you might too. Just go to AppliedCuriosityLab.com to join, or you can probably just pick your favorite search engine and type in Tribe of the Curious. And let's connect online at Becky Saltzman on Twitter and on Facebook at Applied Curiosity Lab. Finally, in order to avoid missing insights from outside the boundaries of ordinary, subscribe to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio on iTunes, YouTube, Stitcher, and all the other places podcasts hide and wait to be discovered. In the meantime, elevate curiosity. Curiosity.